Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. And yes, we're coming to the conclusion of our sermon series, God's Rebuilding Project. Next week, we're going to start a mini sermon series leading up to Easter. It's going to be called Hallelujah, What a Savior. We'll be looking at the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and on Easter, the resurrection of Christ. On February 1st, 2003, while it was re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, the space shuttle Columbia exploded, bringing back memories of the space shuttle Challenger in 1986 exploding. A, A major tragedy. And as they did an investigation of really what caused the disaster, the accident board came to the conclusion that what happened was some foam insulation on one of the wings during takeoff had caused a a tiny little hole to form. And that tiny little hole ended up being the cause of the destruction, of the disaster, of the explosion. Now nobody on that space shuttle knew that a tiny little hole was the cause of something major. How many times are we just kind of coasting through life and we're not, we're not aware of those tiny little holes that may be puncturing our spiritual futures? We're, we're not quite aware of those things that we can't see, those little things. Does anybody know what caused the Titanic to sink? There's, there's a lot of different theories on what caused the Titanic to sink, depending on who you read. One of the theories is that uh, it was poor manufacturing, that the hull of the ship had these little rivets that weren't strong enough. And so these tiny little rivets caused the sinking of the Titanic. Other people think, well, maybe it was the small rudders. At that time, it was such a huge ship that the small rudders weren't able to to let it move fast enough or turn fast enough. Other people thought, well, maybe it was going too fast. Uh, There was pressure on the captain to try to get to New York City in a a very speedy manner, and so some people blame it on the speed. Other people say, well, it was the the angle of the the iceberg. If the Titanic would have hit the iceberg head on, it probably would have been able to go through it, but since it hit it on the starboard side, it caused the, the, the sinking of the Titanic. Other people say it was the eerily calm waters where you really couldn't quite see the icebergs. We, we really don't know. But there's one thing for certain about both the sinking of the Titanic and the destruction and explosion of the space shuttle Columbia. Nobody on those vessels knew what was happening. Nobody expected a disaster. Nobody was, nobody was thinking about something that was hiding underneath the surface. They were cruising along their merry way, unaware of what was going on. And we need to ask ourselves a question. Is there such a danger? Is there such a danger of being deceived by something small? Something unseen? Something that's not quite on our radar screens? Something that happens after a time of revival? Could it be possible that after times of revival and times of spiritual awakening where God does a work among His people, that those same people begin to drift downhill into a destructive pattern of disobedience. Is there the pull of the unholy trinity? Have you ever heard of the unholy trinity? The world, the flesh, and the devil. These three enemies of our soul work overtime to pull us in the wrong direction. Listen to what John says in 1 John 2, 15-17. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God 
abides forever. Can we as believers be so in love with this world that we drift, that we veer off course? Is there such a thing of being in love with this world? You know, there was a guy in the New Testament whose name was Demas. Anybody ever heard of Demas? Demas was a traveling companion of Paul. Demas was a spiritual leader. Demas was involved in the early church, and he started off very well, but he did not end well. Listen to what Paul says about Demas, who used to be his friend, who used to be his ministry partner. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Those those are scary words. Demas was in love with this world. Is there such a thing as having a love affair with this world? James 4, 4. James writes, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, we're coming to the very last chapter of Nehemiah. And I'm somewhat shocked at how it ends. And not really shocked. I mean, I'm shocked, but I'm not really shocked because I look at the ending of Nehemiah and I see how easy it is to drift. How easy it is to get off course. How easy it is to get off track. I know in my own heart how many times I'm tempted to, to fall away or to disobey or to, or to deny the God that I love. And I've seen it time and time in my ministry. Those who start well but don't end well. So what have we seen the past three weeks in Nehemiah? I mean, what's really been going on? It's been a revival of massive proportions. I mean, we've seen a full-scale revival. Back in chapter 8, the first thing we saw was this recovery of a hunger for God's Word, this passion for God's Word, this obedience to God's Word. And then in chapter 9, we saw the confession of sin, this desire to be repentant. They stood for a quarter of a day and confessed their sins to the living God. And then last week, we saw in, in chapter 10 this renewed commitment to obedience. They stood up and signed on the dotted line and pledged an oath that we're going to obey in four specific areas. You remember the areas last week? Those areas that hit us right where we live. Marriage and sexual relationships. Time management and how we use our time. Giving. Financial stewardship. All those types of issues. They stood and said, we will obey God. And so it's a glorious day in Jerusalem, isn't it? I mean, things are at their peak The nation has experienced revival. There's obedience. There's passion. There's joy. There's excitement. We don't have time to look at it, but at the end of chapter 12, they have a wall dedication ceremony. They bring in the singers. They bring in the choirs. And they have this wonderful dedication ceremony to the wall. And then in chapter 12, verse 43, it says, And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. There was joy. There was power. There was passion. There was revival. Things were awesome. But comes chapter 13. Chapter 13. Nehemiah, their leader, had been governor for 12 years. And now he has to go back to Persia. He has to go back to visit the king. And we're not really sure how long he's gone when he goes back. But he's gone long enough for the people to revert back into disobedience. For the people to revert back into the patterns that caused them to go into exile in the first place. In other words, you could say, while the cat is away, the mice will play. So in the final chapter of Nehemiah, we see his final reforms. Revival has hit the nation, but yet they sink back into disobedience. What does Nehemiah do to help these people get back on track. And so it's very frightening. I find this frightening, very frightening, that a people can experience the hand of God in revival and then so easily forget God's power and God's presence. It's a reminder to us that if God were so gracious to bring revival, we need to be very careful that we understand what what steps we need to take in order to, to continue to seek the face of the Lord. And so what we're going to see in chapter 4, I mean chapter 13, are four isms, if you will. Four 
ungodly worldviews, four ungodly influences, four ungodly philosophies that, ha- that have affected the nation of Israel. And as we look at these four issues, we're going to understand how we live in those today. Now, we may not have the titles to these, we may not have the labels, but you and I swim in the current of these every day. These four isms, we live in them. And they are dangerous, they're deceptive, and they come along to try to sweep us away into disobedience. But before we look at those four isms, I just want us to look very briefly at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Because we see the spiritual short-term memory of the people. Let's start in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, didn't they just read the word back in chapter 8? Weren't they confronted with the word? Didn't they, didn't they realize that they needed to separate themselves from foreigners? Didn't they stand for a quarter of a day and confess their sin? Didn't they pledge back in chapter 10, we will separate ourselves from foreigners? And so obviously they, they'd forgotten that because all of a sudden God's word is read again and they realize, oh yeah, we haven't been doing that. Now we need to applaud them for their immediate obedience, but it's amazing that they've got this short-term memory. And from the rest of the chapter, things go downhill fast. Things go downhill fast. So what are these four isms that we see right here in Nehemiah chapter 13? Here's the first ism, the first ungodly influence. It's secularism. Secularism. What is secularism? It's a disinterest. It's a disinterest in God's word. And this disinterest in God's word leads to ungodly associations, ungodly friendships, ungodly alliances, ungodly relationships that are going to influence us to compromise. Now let's see how secularism plays itself out here in verses 4 through 9. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Now, what is secularism, and why is it going on in this passage? Here's what secularism is. Secularism is basically the idea that religion, Christianity, should have no influence in the public square. Let's not talk about Christianity in the public square. Let's just, let's just leave it out of the public life. Let's look to science. Let's look to the government. Let's look to um, social systems. Let's look to anything besides the Bible to give us answers to the social problems that we have. Secularism. Now, what's going on here? What's going on here? Eliashib. We're introduced to a new guy, Eliashib. He's the priest. And he was appointed over the storehouse in the temple. Now, what's the storehouse? Back in chapter 10, verse 38, when they pledged, remember last week, we pledge, we obligate to bring ourselves the tithes and the offerings. When the people brought their tithes and their offerings, they went into the storehouse. That's where all the tithes and offerings and the grain and everything was stored, in the storehouse. And so Eliashib was in charge of this big room. And so here we have a spiritual leader, a priest, so disinterested in God's word that he's willing to make an ungodly association. Because what does he do? He gives that room to Tobiah. You remember who Tobiah was? Let's backtrack in our minds. He's the guy back in the beginning of Nehemiah that wanted to kill Nehemiah. The guy that wanted to go against Nehemiah. The one that said that that if a fox were to jump up on the wall, it would would fall down. And so here's what's going on. Let's clean out the tithe and storehouse and let's let an Ammonite pagan go live in that room. Now this is scandalous. Why in the world would Eliashib the, the priest make such an ungodly association? 
You see, there's a spiritual vacuum in leadership. Because Nehemiah is back in Persia visiting the king. And things from the very top, the spiritual leadership, are going south. And so what does Nehemiah do? He goes in and he, he cleans out the temple. He cleans things out literally. What does he do? He goes in there and you can picture it in your mind. He starts throwing all the furniture out of the house. He just gets mad and says, okay, we're just going to clean house literally. This is the house of God. This is where the storehouse is. A pagan Gentile should not be living where the offerings are supposed to be taken. And so Nehemiah just cleans house. He literally goes in and says, we've got to cleanse ourselves from this. And so secularism had crept in because Eliashib, the leader, said, you know what? It really doesn't matter whether we give tithes or offerings. It doesn't really matter who stays in the temple. It doesn't really matter. He's a cool guy. He doesn't mean any harm. We'll just have, a, we'll have an association. We'll have a friendship with him. And what happens in secularism is you begin to make accommodations. You begin to make compromises. You begin to play these games in your mind. Nobody's going to really care if I compromise here and there. And so what Nehemiah does reminds us a lot of what Jesus did when he turned out the temple, when he overturned the, the tables in the temple. Remember when Jesus goes in and cleans house? He goes in and starts overturning the tables and says, this is God's house. It's to be a house of prayer. You see, when secularism creeps in and we start to make ungodly alliances, we start to make ungodly relationships, sometimes among God's people, we need to clean house. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18 says this. Do you not know that you, plural, he's speaking to the church here in Corinth, you all, you guys are God's temple. Okay, in the Old Testament, it was a physical structure. In the New Testament, the temple is us. We are the temple. We're the body of Christ. That God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. A commentator has said this. Local churches are also vulnerable. They too can be littered with Tobiah's household goods, sins which the enemy spawns, unworthy clutter, spiritual diversions, unhelpful talk, unsanctified ambitions, godless rivalries, and selfish preoccupations. Is the church littered with all of these things? Now, how many of you have had teenagers before? How many of you have asked a teenager to clean their room before? How many of you had much success in doing that? When, when I was a kid, my brother, when we were teenagers, my brother's room looked like a bomb had gone off in that room. Now, when we moved from Texas to Colorado, we had to actually go clean his room to, to, like, move the furniture out of there. And we found behind his bunk bed a cup that looked like it was probably a chocolate malt that had been there for how, who knows how long. And it was growing some stuff, okay? So it was, it was pretty gross. When I was in college at Baylor, the very first semester of my college, uh, my freshman year, on my dorm, there were these guys down the hall. And their goal that year was to not clean their room to not take out trash, to not do any laundry. And I can tell you, there was a stench coming from that room. It reminds you of pig pen, you know, from the, the peanuts. So I'd walk by that room, and I looked in there one time, and literally, it was knee-deep full of, like, McDonald's bags and all this gross stuff. It, it was, I mean, it was cluttered. It was literally, it was disgusting. Think about the imagery of God's house. Not the church building, the people. How often do we as God's people have this litter, have this garbage, have this ungodliness that needs to be cleaned out? And so Eliashib here is a product of secularism. He, he had a disinterest in God's word. He's the priest and says, I don't really care about God's word. I care more about this friendship. I care more about making this alliance with Tobiah. And so secularism doesn't happen all of a sudden. You begin to drift. You make compromise here compromise there. We don't get caught. So we think, well, I can just keep doing this. And pretty soon you're knee deep. You're knee deep in secularism. Like my, they weren't really my friends, but the guys down the hall were knee deep in stuff in their dorm room. So what's the answer? If secularism is a disinterest in God's word, what's the answer? It's a renewed interest in God's word. It's a renewed interest in God's word. 
The antidote is to constantly keep coming back to the scriptures and saturating ourselves in the scriptures and, 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 and obeying these scriptures and filling our hearts and minds with these scriptures. What did Jesus say in John 15, 7 through 8? If you abide in me and my words abide in you. God's word, if Jesus' word lives in you, abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus says, let my word live in you. And then what does Paul say in Colossians 3.16? It's almost the, the mere image. Jesus says, let my words live in you. And what does Paul say? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you. You live in the word, let the word live in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the first enemy, the first philosophy, the first ism is secularism. A disinterest in God's word. Just a flat-out disinterest in God's word that leads you into ungodly compromise. Now what's the second ism? What's the second ism that we see here in this passage of scripture? It is materialism. Materialism which is a dissatisfaction with God's provision, which leads to an ungodly worship of money as the ultimate end. Let's look at verses 10 through 14. I also found, so Nehemiah's back, he's cleaned out, the, he's cleaned out Tobiah's room and, and found all this crazy stuff going on. Verse 10, I also found out that portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe to the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedaiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Now what's going on here? The Levites are no longer serving in the temple. Now we need to understand something about the Levites. Back in Joshua, when the nation of Israel conquered the land, the Levites were the only tribe, the only group that was not given a portion of land. Their money, their salary, their livelihood was to come from the tithes and offerings given through the temple system. So they made their money. They, they, they lived, basically, they, they lived off a pastor's salary, if you will. They survived off what the, ch- what the church gave to them in leadership through tithes and offerings. And what had happened here? That's no longer going on. So these guys are forced to go out and work on farms to go out to their fields and work on farms. They're not getting paid. Now, here's the issue. What did they pledge back in chapter 10? We saw it last week. We obligate ourselves to bring the tithe, to bring the storehouse, to bring all the offerings, to, to bring our tithes and offerings to the house of God. We are not going to, 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 to deny celebrating and keeping up the house of God. And so they pledge, we're going to tithe, we're going to give. And what had happened? They'd forgotten that and gotten into materialism. They got this loosey-goosey attitude, probably from Eliashib the priest all the way down, where the Levites weren't being taken care of. Now, think about the Levites for a moment. They were important to the nation of Israel. What have we seen them doing so far in the book of Nehemiah? Back in chapter 8, the Levites were the ones that helped Ezra preach. They would go around into the small groups, and they would do the small group Bible study. They would teach. They would interpret. They would exposit the Word of God. We didn't have a chance to see this, but back in chapter 12, they were the singers. They were the choir directors. They were the worship leaders. So, so these were the pastors and the worship leaders of the nation of Israel who are being marginalized from the temple to go work out on farms. And so what the, what the, big, what the big issue here is, is basically the nation saying, we don't care about spiritual leadership. We don't care about the temple. We don't care if we hear the Word of God. We don't care if we sing the word of God. Let's send the worship leaders. Let's send the pastors. Let's send them out to fend for themselves because we really don't care. Because what's more important to us? Money. We don't want to give to the temple. We don't want to give to support the Levites. We want to keep it for ourselves. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 24? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve two, or you cannot serve God and money. I don't think Jesus could have said it any clearer. First Timothy chapter six, verse ten. 
for the love of money. The love of money. Not money. We need money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And let me just meddle for just a moment. Is that okay? When it comes to tithing, when it comes to giving, I think many Christians get into a rut. And here they begin to play this, this out in their minds. They, they begin to think, if I tithe, if I give, if I give God my first fruits, then I'm not going to have anything left for groceries. Or I'm not going to have anything left for my bills. Or I'm not going to have anything left for my stuff. And so we begin to play this game. If I withhold from God, then I need to keep this for me. And what you end up doing is you go further and further into disobedience where you would get the blessing, you would get the blessing of tithing and giving if you would just do it. And so what they are doing here is they're beginning to doubt God's provision. They're not tithing, they're not giving, they're not seeing the value and the benefit of giving financially and being financial stewards. And so they get themselves in this rut of just continuing in disobedience by not giving and tithing. So what's the answer? If, 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 if materialism is a dissatisfaction in God's provision, I'm dissatisfied with, with what I've got. I need all this stuff. What's the answer? Well, it's a renewed satisfaction. It's a renewed satisfaction in God's provision. God will provide for you. Can I just, can I just tell you this? If you practice, I'm not a health, wealth, prosperity preacher. You know that. I'm not a name it, claim it, blab it, grab it kind of guy. Okay, so you don't have to sow your seed into my ministry. We're not t- I'm, not t- I'm not a televangelist, but I will say this. If you practice financial tithing and giving, it's amazing how the Lord will bless you and how he will meet your needs. Not your wants, but your needs. I guarantee it. The Bible teaches it. What does Philippians 4.19 say? And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and the glory in Christ Jesus. He'll provide for your needs. So what have they been susceptible to? Secularism, a disinterest in God's word. Materialism, a dissatisfaction in God's provision. What's the third ism that they're susceptible to? Relativism. Relativism is a disregard for God's truth, which leads to an ungodly rejection of his absolute standards. Let's see this unfold in in verses 15 through 22. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And that's not a healing service, folks. From the time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Over and over again, they're breaking the Sabbath. They're breaking the Sabbath. They're breaking the Sabbath. What did they stand up and sign on the dotted line last week in chapter 10? We will not break the Sabbath. We will not break the Sabbath. And these Tyrians, these Gentiles, they're, they're coming in on Saturday, on the Sabbath day, and they're buying and they're trading and they're selling up their shops and they're doing all this stuff. And Nehemiah comes back and says, this is ridiculous. He says, get these guys out of here. Let's close the gates. The gates are going to be closed on the Sabbath and these guys camp out. These guys camp out waiting for the Sabbath day in hopes that somebody would sneak out so they could do business. And Nehemiah says, if that happens, I'm coming down off that wall and I'm going to lay hands on you. Nehemiah is no wimp. Now, why is this relativism? 
What's relativism? Relativism is the idea that there's really no absolute truth. You can believe what you want to believe. I can believe what I want to believe. If our two things are, are coherent, cool. If not, it's all right. All truths are, are everybody's truths. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Here's the issue. The Sabbath was the only thing, let me, let me put it this way. No other nation during the time of Israel had a Sabbath. They were the only nation on planet earth that God had given them a Sabbath and said, this is a day holy unto the Lord. This is what marked out the people of Israel. In addition to circumcision, Sabbath was one of those things that said, this is the people of God. And so here's how relativism creeps in. They began to become self-conscious of this thing that made them different. They began to kind of get embarrassed of this thing that made them different. After all, it's just a day, God. It's no big deal. If we buy and sell on Sabbath, it's not that big a deal. As a matter of fact, all the nations around us are doing it. Everybody else is doing it. It's not that big a deal. Does that sound familiar? That's what relativism is. Everybody else is doing it. We can make this one little compromise because after all, God, it's not a big deal. You see, what's happening in our culture today is Christians are becoming embarrassed by absolute truth. We don't want to stand up and say, there are some absolute truths from the Scripture, and we will stand on those. We waffle, we capitulate, we get flimsy, we get, we get so wacky. Let me just ask you some questions about relativism. Is Jesus the only way of salvation? Yes. Is there a place called hell of eternal conscious torment for those who die in their sins and reject Jesus? Yes. Is the Bible the only authoritative, infallible, inspired word of God? Is marriage defined as one man and one woman for a lifetime? Okay, so there are some absolute truths that the Scripture says. Relativism comes in and says, you can deny those because all truths are equal. And when you stand up and say there's absolute truth, what do you label? Narrow-minded, intolerant, and a bigot. The, the, The amazing thing about our culture is that Everything's tolerated under the sun except for one thing. Evangelical Christianity is not tolerated. It's the intolerance of tolerance. So Nehemiah goes down and says, I'm going to lay hands on you. Here's this thing that was going on. The people were more influenced by those pagan traders outside the wall than they were by the word of God. That's what happens when relativism creeps into a culture. You begin to get more influenced by the pagan voices of the culture than by the word of God. You begin to say, well, well, this is what the world says. This is what the world believes. This is what my teacher says. This is what Hollywood says. This is what Madison Avenue says. This is what the politician says. This is what the blog and the internet and all these things says. And you don't go back and say, well, what does God's word say about it? So what's the answer to relativism? If it's a disregard for God's word, it's a renewed regard for God's word. It's a renewed regard for God's word. Let me just say this about the scriptures. This scripture does not change based upon cultural standards. Would you, would you agree with me on that? There is a fixed meaning to this scripture. And what was true 5,000 years ago is true today. And we have no right to sit here and say, we're above the Bible and we can change its meaning. So relativism says we can pick and choose which parts of this word we want to believe and which parts we don't want to believe. And the Bible says this is truth from Genesis to Revelation without any mixture of error. It's the absolute standard. So let me ask you a question again. Is Jesus the only way of salvation? What does Acts 4.12 say? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is there such a place as hell for those who die in their sins? Yes, I'm going to read a very scary passage of Scripture, Revelation 14, 10 through 11, but it's in the Bible. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Is the Bible God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Does the Bible have anything to say about marriage and about the homosexual issue? 
I'm not going to be picking on homosexuals for those that struggle with same-sex marriage. I'm not going to pick on you or pick on them because I think heterosexual couples that live together and have sex before marriage are just as sinful. So let me pick on both of you, okay? I'm not just going to exclude. I'm going to, I'm going to, make the, I'm going to widen the tent here and say that sexual ethics apply to all people. Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Does the Bible have something to say about homosexual behavior? Yes. But let me just talk to heterosexual couples. It's heterosexual couples that think it's okay to sleep together before marriage, to live together before marriage, to have sex outside of marriage. Don't just, don't just think that the Bible has nothing to say about that. What does the Bible say about the absolute standard of sexual purity? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5. For this is the will of God. Do you ever want to know what God's will is? He tells you right here. Your sanctification, that you abstain, abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Is the Bible absolute truth? Yes. So here's what's going on. Three isms that this nation is falling into right after revival. Secularism, a disinterest in God's word. Materialism, a dissatisfaction in God's, stand, in God's provision. And then relativism. Relativism is a disregard for God's absolute truth. What's the fourth one? Pluralism. Pluralism is a disintegration. A disintegration of God's authority which leads to the ungodly thinking that all faiths are basically the same. Let's see this unfold at the end of the chapter, verse 23 through 28. In those days, I also saw Jews who had, mar- who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Now remember, last week, what did they pledge in chapter 10? We will not intermarry. It wasn't a racist thing. It, it, was, it was more the fact that they were the covenant community of God and they were not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And they stood up and said, we will not do that. And in verse 27, Nehemiah says, you've created a great treachery, a great evil. Now, why do I say intermarrying is pluralism? What's pluralism? Pluralism is basically the view that all paths lead to God. If you believe in Buddha, that's cool. If you believe in Vishnu, that's cool. If you believe in Allah, that's cool. If you believe in Jesus, that's cool. If you believe in Oprah, that's cool. If you believe in Joseph Smith, that's cool. If you believe in any of these things, that's cool because basically they're all saying the same things and we all end up in the same place, right? Wrong. All paths do lead to God. You stood up and like, whoa, what's he saying? All paths lead to God. The question is, when you get there, are you going to find him as your father in Christ or as your judge? That's the difference. If you want to worship Allah, it's going to lead you straight to God. But it's not going to be Allah. It's going to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not in Christ, you will meet him as your judge. Now, what's the most intimate relationship anybody can ever enter into? Marriage. Now, let's play this out for a moment. Let's just, think about, let's just think about pluralism taking place in the life of a young Israelite boy. Young Israelite boy falls in love with young Moabite girl. It's love at first sight. And so they get married. Jewish boy, Moabite girl, they get married. And so the, the young Jewish boy says, hey, honey, we really need to go to the temple. 
So let's go to the temple and let's worship and, and let's give our tithes and offerings to the temple so the Levites can, can get their pay and we can obey God. And let's, by the way, let's, let's raise our kids understanding that Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let, let's, let's, raise, let's raise our kids in the fear of, of Yahweh, the Lord. And she says, that's cool, honey. But you know what? I worship Shemosh. Shemosh is the God of the Moabites. And it's okay if you want to go to the temple, but you know what? I would like to send some money back to my parents in Moab to give to their temple so that we can worship Shemosh. And if it's okay with you, can we raise our kids understanding Yahweh and Shemosh? Because after all, they're really the same God. And what begins to happen? Young Jewish boy says, well, okay. Children are confused. And the next thing you know, you have pluralism to where they're a family that says, well, really all paths lead to God. It really doesn't matter who we worship as long as we are sincere. Let's just combine these two together because nobody's really going to care. And Nehemiah does what any good pastor does. He goes down and starts beating people up. (laughs) Starts pulling hair. I was joking with the elders earlier this week and I said, we should have a laying on of hand service. Have a couple of big bouncers up here that look like secret service agents and say, we're going to have a laying on. If anybody wants to have their hand, lay them on their hands, come up here. And we were just joking. But um, that's, not a, uh, that's not something that, that pastorally you should do as leadership. But Nehemiah goes down and he says, okay, you fathers who let your, wi- let your daughters do this, I'm beating you up. He goes out there and starts beating people up, which I thought was very interesting. And then here's the, here's the other thing. The high priest's son, Jehoiada, Who's he married to? The daughter of Sanballat. Remember who Sanballat was? He's the other guy that wanted to assassinate Nehemiah. So Sanballat and Tobiah, who we thought we hadn't heard of back in the early chapters because they were enemies, now they're at the end and they have integral places in the life of the community. And so what does Nehemiah do? He chases him. I really don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. I chased him from me. So again, what's the answer? If, if, if pluralism is a disintegration in our thinking, thinking that all paths lead to God, we need to have a renewed thinking, a new thinking, an integrated thinking. What does Romans 12 verse 2 say? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Pluralism. All paths lead to God. Relativism. There's no absolute truth. Materialism. It's all about me and my God is money. Secularism. I don't really care about God's word. It has no influence in my life. Do you see how we're swimming in this in our culture today? We deal with this every day. It's nothing new under the sun. The nation of Israel dealt with the same issue. But before we close this chapter in Nehemiah, before we we say goodbye to Nehemiah as a church for a while, I want us to to just focus on these last two verses and remember something very important that we've seen over these past eight weeks. Let's read the last two verses. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offerings at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. What are the two things that recur over and over and over again in Nehemiah that are crucial to our lives as Christians and are crucial to our lives as a church? The word and prayer. How many times is Nehemiah praying? in this book. He's always praying. He's always praying. It started out with him praying on his knees because the wall was torn down. It ends with him praying. What was the great revival? It was the recovery of God's word, the word and prayer. And and this is interesting how Nehemiah ends here. You'd think the way it would end would be, Lord, remember me because I rebuilt the wall. What do we remember Nehemiah from? The rebuilding of the wall. But remember that happened back in chapter 6. God is not so much interested in the rebuilding of a physical wall as he was what? The rebuilding of the spiritual people, revival among the people. And what is Nehemiah known for at the end here? I cleanse them from everything foreign. 
I helped the nation get back on track. I led them to seek the face of God. I led them to be a people of word and of prayer. And so how does spiritual growth happen? How does revival happen? How does community transformation happen? How does anything in this world happen? It happens with what? An absolute surrender to the authority of God's word and an absolute dependence upon him in prayer. An absolute dependence upon the authority of God's word and an absolute dependence upon him in prayer. So how does revival come? The word and prayer. How can we not get into secularism, which is a disinterest in God's In God's word, word and prayer. How do we not get into materialism, which is a love of things and having money our God? The word and prayer. How do we get away from and not be seduced into relativism, thinking all truths are equal and there's no absolute truth? The word and prayer. How do we not get get sucked into pluralism, thinking that all paths lead to God? The word and prayer. Everything goes back to the word and prayer. So, as we close the book on Nehemiah, And as we close the chapter, I've thought about something. If God were to ever close the chapter, or God were to ever close the book on Emmanuel Baptist Church, and one day we're all dead, and somebody's going to write the obituary about Emmanuel Baptist Church, and they may say, well, you know what, they built a big building. Or you know what, they had all these great activities going on. What I want them to write when they close the chapter on Emmanuel Baptist Church, is that we were a people that were absolutely surrendered to this word, and we were a people who were absolutely dependent upon the Lord in prayer. That we would be known for a people of the word and people of prayer. Regardless of anything else that they would say about us, they would say Emmanuel Baptist Church loves, adores, lifts up, obeys, and submits to the word of God, and they seek the face of Jesus like crazy in prayer, and that's the heartbeat of who they are. They're a people of the word, and they're the people of prayer. So as we close Nehemiah, and the wall has been rebuilt, God's always in the process of rebuilding us spiritually. And I would pray that God does bring revival. And I pray that as we've seen what God does in revival here, you and I would be ready for it. So let's ask God to to do a work in rebuilding us. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. And my question for you this morning is this. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed as you're thinking and praying, which ism are you most susceptible to? Which one has got you possibly in its grip? Or which one do you tend to float towards? Which one do you get, do you get tripped up in? Is it, is it secularism? This idea that I don't really care what God's word says. I'm, I may have some ungodly friends. I may have some ungodly influences. I've got some associations, some things that, that just aren't godly. Or maybe it's materialism. You, you have a love of money. That the money is your God. That you're dissatisfied. You're, you're discontent. Or maybe it's relativism where you're making... Um, you're making um, some, some compromises on the absolute standard of God's word and you're, and you're, and you're waffling here and there and you're saying all, that, that all truths are equal and there's no absolute truth. Or maybe it's pluralism where you really in your heart of hearts don't believe that Jesus is the only way. And maybe you're here this morning and you've walked in and, and you have no idea what we're talking about and you, you haven't been here for the Nehemiah service or, or the Nehemiah sermons, but you, you know deep in your heart that there's something wrong with you. And you know that you struggle with this whole idea of who God is and is Jesus the only way and can I believe the Bible? And my encouragement to you is to keep coming to Emmanuel. Keep asking those questions. Hopefully this is a safe place for you to come and to learn and to explore and we want to be able to answer your questions. So it's okay to have doubts. It's okay to be in this place today. Let me just say this. It's okay to be in this place today and not believe in God. I'd rather have you here than out in the world trying to figure it out someplace else. So you are welcome here if you have struggles. So spend some time in prayer this morning, asking God to to reveal the hole. Like in the space shuttle Columbia, there was a little hole that left unattended to cause an explosion. Or like the Titanic, what under the surface is in your life that God needs to bring attention to you so that you don't veer off into destruction? Spend some time in prayer this morning asking God to search your heart. Father, we come before you this morning 
as people who are so influenced by the world. And if we're honest with ourselves, at times we're in love with this world. Help us to realize that this world and its desires are passing away and that friendship with the world is being an enemy of you. And Father, we can't escape the world. We can't go live as hermits. We can't go live as monks. We've got to be in this world, but we're not of this world. And so, Lord, as we live our lives in this world and we're pulled by these different isms, by by secularism and pluralism and relativism and materialism, just pray that we would humble ourselves before your throne and realize that Jesus, you're worth it. You're worth more than any of these other things that, 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 that lure us away from your, from your love and your gaze and your allegiance. So may we live our lives to the glory of God. And may we be a people of word and of prayer. May we never abandon the absolute truth of your scriptures. May we hold fast our confession of faith till the end, regardless of what this world says against us. May we be a people of the word. And Father, at the same time, may we be a people of prayer where we're on our knees and we are desperately crying out to you and our whole life is a posture of dependence and humility that we need your grace, we need your power, we need need revival. Lord, would you please bring revival? We desperately need it. Lord, this nation will never change unless you bring a third great awakening. There's no other answer, Lord, than a third great awakening where you come and burn deeply in the hearts of your people to where we are a holy people, we are a passionate people, and you bring revival to our hearts and it spreads from our hearts to the nation around us. So, Father, would you bring a third great awakening like you did in this nation twice? You brought a first great awakening. You brought a second great awakening. And I believe you can bring a third great awakening. May we be ready. May we be dependent. May we be your people. That it may be all to the glory of God. And as I think about the song, Glory to God, there's those words. Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Take my life and let it be yours. Let that be our prayer. Take my life and let it be all for your glory. Take my life and let it be yours. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus for his glory. Amen. Amen.